standard issue for all women. Hello, Mickey here. Welcome to Sunday Chops. I'm going to skip the preamble about all the other lovely ear stuff we've got for you on Acast, iTunes and other podcasty places because you know the drill. Let's get straight to the meat of this week's chops. This week is Refugee Week. Okay, okay. So today, if you're listening to this on Sunday, is the last day of Refugee Week 2018. So we are squeaking this in. But in all honesty, the refugee crisis isn't going anywhere fast. According to a recent UN report, 68.5 million people were displaced last year. 68.5 million people forced to flee their homes. That's 3 million more people than the entire population of the UK. And more than half of that number were under 18. Obviously, the current focus with regards to displaced people is on the US-Mexico border and the Trump administration's abhorrent zero-tolerance immigration policy that is seeing children, babies even, separated from their parents. In fact, at the time of recording, more than 2,300 children have been separated from their parents in a five-week period. I was lucky enough to grab time on the phone with Laura Kirk-Smith, Director of Communications at the International Rescue Committee Europe, and after the mid-roll ad, you'll hear me chatting to Yasmin Cardi, a musician and actor originally from Sierra Leone. Yasmin and her family were forced to flee for their lives when she was just 13. First up is Laura, who gave me the lowdown on the current refugee crisis, told me what the IRC are doing, and also gave advice on how we can help. I began by asking what her thoughts were on the current shit show in America. Oh, well, obviously, absolutely awful. I'm horrified to see some of the pictures that we're seeing from, from the border there. It sounds like in uh, the recent six-week period, we've had about 2,000 children separated from their parents after crossing the border. And it's just awful to see the images, to hear the stories of 18-month-old babies who are left in cages with no one to change their nappy. It's just horrific, and I'm sure, you know, I'm sure... So many people now are, are seeing those images and, and, and really shocked by what they're seeing. And I suppose for us at the, uh, the International Rescue Committee, we've been working in the US for decades. We were founded back in 1933 as a refugee resettlement agency in, in the US. So we've got a lot of experience there working with exactly the kind of people who we're seeing stuck uh, on the borders today. And even now working in places like El Salvador. So we, we sort of see firsthand and we work with these people who have suffered quite horrific and brutal violence. And I guess see some of the kind of drivers of the migrations that we're seeing into the US. So, so really, really awful to see that. I think what's very clear to us is many of these people will have very credible claims and, and, and will be in need of protection. And they all absolutely have the legal right to have their cases heard without being treated as criminals or separated from their children upon arrival. I think some people get the terms refugees and migrants and illegal immigrants very confused. So could you tell us what defines a refugee? Yeah, absolutely. It is. Um, people do find it confusing. And it's actually, um, it's actually very clear when you look at the definitions in international law. So refugees are recognised under international law as people who have been forced to flee their homes and their countries due to war or persecution. This was enshrined in law in 1951 in, in the UN Refugee Convention, and that defines exactly who a refugee is, and it sets out their rights and the responsibilities of states that signed up to that convention. They are people who have not left their countries by choice, that's the bottom line. They have been forced to leave and they deserve protection. But yes, as you say, they're often confused with migrants um, or, or immigrants. And of course, there are plenty of people who... Um, 
um, who leave their homes and who cross borders for many different reasons, whether it's for, for work or for study or to be with their families. And these are people um, who may well be, you know, very valuable contributors to our societies often are, but they don't have that same right to protection under international law. It's a tricky one. I just think it's really important that we, we recognise the unique status and the unique rights of refugees and give them the protection that they're entitled to under international law. Yeah, definitely. And before the humanitarian crisis in the US took over all of the front pages, I think it was Syria that was probably the go-to country when people thought of displaced people, of refugees. But there are about, is it 68.5 million people that are displaced in the world today? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That figure has just come out yesterday, actually. It's the UNHCR, uh, the UN agency that looks after refugees that, that produces those figures each year. It was 65 million last year, which was a big enough um, stat in its own right, but, but up to 68.5 million this year. Which means, actually, if you look at the last year, every two seconds, on average, a person was forced to flee their home, which is just a terrifying statistic. That's um, horrific. Just horrific. And actually, there's a bit of a breakdown within those stats as well from, from UNHCR, and it's, it's more than half of the refugees now uh, that are children. That's, that's a figure that's gone up um, it's 52% now. So again, I think there are, there are some you know, misperceptions around these people being young male often male people and um, the vast majority more than more than half are, are children the vast majority are women and children and i think that's worth keeping in mind and there's some other stats i mean some other interesting stats in there as well so uh, the one that always strikes me is actually that developing countries in the world host 85 percent of the world's refugees we worry here about um, too many refugees coming coming to the uk coming to other parts of europe but actually if you look at the statistics it's places like Lebanon, Turkey, Uganda, um, Bangladesh. These, these are the countries that are hosting, you know, hundreds of hundreds of thousands of refugees, just welcoming and hosting people on a scale, um, a completely different scale to, to Europe. And I think that's, that's quite important to note as well when we think about what our contribution as, as the UK and, and in Europe should be. Mm-hmm. Could you give us a few facts and figures from whereabouts in the world people are fleeing. We're very good at just seeing what's in the news, being horrified and then going back to our normal lives. Absolutely, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, 68% of all refugees come from just five countries. Syria, Afghanistan, South Sudan, uh, Myanmar and Somalia are the top refugee-producing countries. Mm-hmm. As I say, most of those refugees flee to countries that are surrounding those countries of origin. So in the case of Syria, the vast majority of Syrian refugees have ended up in Lebanon or in Jordan and in Turkey. So globally, Turkey is the country that hosts the most refugees. There are 3.5 million refugees living in Turkey currently. Good for you, Turkey. Um, Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. It does put into perspective the small numbers that we we sort of argue over here in terms of whether we can manage to take that that number or not. But I think the other thing that's interesting is the fact that the wars that the refugees are fleeing from are lasting longer and longer as well. So you've got the war in Syria now into its eighth year. And I think there's this perception that refugees leave countries, flee countries, and then they should be able to go home. The reality is, sadly, for people, the chances of them being able to go home are getting slimmer and slimmer as wars last longer and longer. Yeah. Um, so that, again, is a real is a real challenge for us, for anyone who, who wants to be able to help these people. I guess the type of support that they need is changing. So it's not just about going in, providing some emergency supplies, and then hoping they can go home again. You know, these are people who will be away from home for many, many years. And so they need help with education. They need help getting into 
work. They need that kind of long-term support as well as just the emergency relief. You've mentioned a couple of times the disparity between the numbers of refugees places like Turkey and Jordan are taken into the number of refugees that countries in Europe take in. What is, what is, and by our, I mean Europe and specifically the UK, what are our numbers? Really small. I, you'll remember, for example, the, the debate over whether or not we should take in 3,000 unaccompanied minors from Europe a couple of years ago now. And, yeah. um, and people like Alpha Dubs were really strong supporters of us taking those, those children in. The, the numbers are, are, are small and they're sort of in the thousands, as I say, yeah, in contrast to, to Turkey with that. With 3.5 million, it's, um, it, it's very small numbers indeed. If you look at Europe's GDP, Europe has about 22% of the world's GDP and yet hosts about 12% of the world's refugees. So you may disagree that that's, uh, that's the way to calculate the basis on which refugees should be, should be welcomed or not. But I think it's certainly fair to say that Europe can afford to, to help refugees, certainly in comparison to other countries um, with a lot, a lot lower GDP that do a lot more. We certainly need to pull our finger out. So what can yeah. like you or me or people on the ground do to try and encourage that to happen? I mean, there's lots we can do. It's quite, it's quite easy to feel helpless, I think, in the face of some of these, these big numbers. But actually, each and every one of us can do, uh, can do lots. So in the UK, for example, we have a, a community sponsorship scheme uh, that the government introduced, which means that uh, any community group can, if they like, choose to sponsor a refugee family and welcome them um, into their into their borough. If you have a home, if you own a home and you have a spare room, you can take in refugees. There are brilliant organisations like Refugees at Home uh, that make that possible. If you're a business or if you work for a business, you can encourage your business to employ refugees. I think of some of the refugees that I've met in the places I've visit, uh, in the places I've been to with the International Refugee Committee. You meet refugees who are incredibly skilled business people, incredibly skilled doctors, nurses, engineers, people who are very employable. And the International Refugee Committee actually has worked with a number of uh, a number of big companies like Starbucks who have committed to employ um, 10,000 refugees. Certainly, it's something that any employer could look to do. And this goes back to what I was saying about refugees being displaced from their homes for longer and longer and the importance of providing them with, with work when we think about the kind of support that refugees need. And then I would just say, you know, speaking out, the more the more people who are out there on Facebook, on Twitter, writing to their MPs, talking about why they think we uh, as a country, as individuals, need to be supporting refugees, the better, because these people do listen, they will take note. Um, and I think often you can feel helpless, you can decide to keep quiet, but just keep keep up the pressure to your elected representatives um, and, and hammer home that message that refugees do matter to us. I think I'd probably also be remiss if I didn't say there are lots of brilliant charities like the International Rescue Committee that you can, you can donate to. And we're obviously doing a massive amount of work. Uh, 23 million people we worked with last year to, uh, to provide them with assistance. And, wow. uh, and so again, great way to make a difference if you can afford to do that. Well, I was going to say, please, can you tell us a bit about what International Rescue Committee has been doing? We're a global organisation. We work in 40 countries across the world and we do a, a vast amount of work uh, in America where there is an established refugee resettlement programme. We have a number of offices in different states where we help to um, welcome refugees and support their orientation as they adjust to uh, American culture and as they seek 
work will provide a lot of uh, training and support as they, as they do that and help get kids into schools and so on. So that, that refugee resettlement bit is a big, a big important part of our work. But equally, we're on the ground in many, many different countries. So we've got um, a lot of staff inside Syria. We've got 40 staff who are currently in Hodeida, the, the port in Yemen that's been in the news um, over the last few days that we fear an attack there and we fear for our staff who are, who are there delivering the healthcare programme. We provide support across the board. We, uh, we will support with healthcare, we will support with livelihoods, we call them, so helping, helping to get people um, into work. We'll provide emergency food and shelter uh, where that's required. And as I say, this emphasis on long-term programming now is, is really important for us. So just moving away from emergency relief towards helping people who we see kids, you know, we see kids who spend their entire childhood in refugee camps because they're not able to get back home. And so pr- providing the kind of support that's going to mean they, they get a decent education and they're able to go on and find employment in adult life is a really important part of our work now as well. You mentioned the refugee camps. What are conditions like there? Because my mind's immediately gone to the Calais jungle, which was just awful. Yeah. Yeah, just um, just awful. Well, I think one important point to note is that we, have, again, have this image of refugees in camps. Actually, the vast majority of refugees are not in camps, but in urban areas in cities or in sort of informal tent settlements, actually, a bit like we've seen in Calais. So I think there's, there's the image of the sprawling refugee camp, and, and that's the reality for some refugees, for sure. But others are having to live in, um, in actually very difficult circumstances where they're they're more invisible than they are in a camp and therefore it's quite hard to reach them with the kind of support that they, they need, you know, in temporary rental accommodation in a big city or whatever whatever it might be. But the camp conditions and the, and the conditions in which all, in which all refugees are, are, are tricky just in terms of that uncertainty. I think one of the most difficult um, situations we're seeing at the moment is in, in Bangladesh where there's a huge number of refugees around um, Cox's bizarre um, and the monsoons have just started there so people are living in very fragile houses perched on the side of these sort of muddy banks and we're really quite frightened about um, what happens when the when the rain starts up and it's going to be very difficult to get support to these people um, and very very difficult for sanitation and for them to be able to access clean food and water and, and and medical assistance where they need that so that's high on our list of concerns at the moment. You mentioned earlier as well that you said the majority of refugees are actually women and children. Yeah. And of course, women will have different needs to men. I Just as soon as you say sanitation, I mean, having a period's horrific enough without not knowing where clean water and stuff is. Yeah, absolutely. There are some um, really quite specific needs that these people have that, um, that will help them to address. And we've got, we've got these brilliant women's protection specialists who will do everything from making sure there's safe space where women can shower and go to the toilet to making sure there are you know, forums where they can meet other women and feel supported by them or get um, assistance from, from our staff if they're in need of, of counselling or whatever it might be. I think a large number of these women, and in fact all the refugees that we work with, are suffering quite severe trauma, having fled from, from war zones. And actually their mental health as well as their physical health is really important to take care of. And so that's something we're very... Um, you know, very concerned about in our programmes. Talking about the long-term factor that's at play now, what's the sort of length of time people are having to live in these conditions, in these camps or in rented accommodation? The average time that people are displaced from their homes now is 17 years. 17? So one would, seven? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately we're seeing Syria 
head in this direction, I think, now, because it's, as I say, into its, into its eighth year um, as a war. And so that people have now been away from their homes for, for eight years. But no, we meet, um, we meet and we work with, with children who, have, who were born in refugee camps, have spent their entire childhood in refugee camps, are now looking for work in and around the camps if that's permitted, but often um, refugees won't have the right to work. These are people who are having to spend their, in some cases, their, their entire lives in camps um, without ever seeing the place where their, uh, their family came from. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's the reality of the, the global refugee crisis today. Laura, how do you just not go home every night and sob into a pillow? I know, I know. Well, you have to, you have to look on the upside. And actually, do you know what? It's the refugees that we work with that I think keep us all going here because they are so, they are so inspiring. And it's very easy to talk about refugees. But when you meet them, you're not meeting refugees. You're meeting bright, ambitious students. You're meeting very talented dentists and doctors. You're meeting engineers you're meeting kids you're meeting dads you're meeting mums and I think that's what it's very easy to forget is that that these are all human beings too and when you meet them and you hear their determination and their ambition to um, to build a better life for themselves then it's really hard not to be inspired actually. Are there places that people could go and volunteer? Yeah there are there absolutely are unfortunately at the international community we don't have um, volunteering options in the in the UK um, but there are plenty of other charities like um, City of Sanctuary where you can do that and lots of opportunities for volunteering in uh, in other countries as well. Short term thinking of America and thinking of those 68.5 million displaced people is it good to just throw some cash somewhere? Where is the best place to throw a bit of cash if people have got that spare? Oh, good question. You're I mean, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I should probably just say the international rescue committee. You know, anyone who is interested in this issue should um, should do their research and look at the different charities that are supporting refugees. Should think about whether they want to support refugees in the UK and other parts of Europe. Whether there are other parts of the world that they care about in particular, and donate to any charities that they. Uh, that they do feel they'd like to support. Of course, this requires money as a solution, but I do think it also requires solidarity and support. And the more that people can speak out as well as donate, the better. And actually, I should mention the film that we have released for World Refugee Day, because our hope with the film was that it would do exactly that, which is inspire people to to stand up and to show their support for refugees, to stand with refugees. Um, and so we have we have partnered with the Globe Theatre, Globe Theatre, and we have launched this film called The Stranger's Case, which is a very little known Shakespeare passage, um, but an incredibly powerful one, set 400 years ago, but so incredibly relevant today, talking all about why Londoners should open their minds and their hearts to refugees and, and welcome them. And we've teamed up with a number of actors, a number of refugees, to have this passage read uh, on the stage of the Globe Theatre. Really encourage people to to watch that and to share that as they feel inspired to do so as well. It is astonishing. I have seen it and retweeted and shared oh. and we will continue to do so because it's, it's an amazing little thank bit you. of film there. And Great. Laura, thank you so much for talking to us. I mean, I feel despondent and yet at the same time hopeful that we're, maybe we can make a change. feel inspired. I think it's one, you know, one step at a time, but everyone can do their bit. I think that's the message we want to, we want to get across. The film Laura mentioned IRC made with The Globe is definitely worth a watch and you can find links to it from our Twitter account at Standard Issue UK but you know that by now right? Right? And also on Twitter at IRC Europe where it is the pin tweet.
Yasmin Cardi is in that film. Now a successful musician and actor, Yasmin and her family had to flee their home in Sierra Leone during the Blood Diamond War. I asked Yasmin to tell us her story. Seriously, I defy you not to fall a little bit in love with this strong, generous-hearted bird. Oh, and just a heads up, some of what she recounts is fucking horrific. Oh, long story, so I'll try and summarise it. Originally from Sierra Leone, West Africa. My family and I fled in 93 when the Civil War initially happened, um, commonly known as the Blood Diamond War. To cut a long story short, we were attacked at about three, four in the morning. We had soldiers, well, rebels really, who surrounded the house with guns and ammunition and thought we had a safe full of diamonds. So they smashed the doors, smashed the windows and came in, dragged us out into the veranda, um, screaming and shouting, where are the diamonds, where are the diamonds? At this point, you know, we didn't have any electricity, we didn't have any food. My parents were just about surviving because obviously there was a civil war going on. They near enough beat my dad to death, took him away. He had epilepsy and he didn't have his medication, so we stayed him dead after two weeks. Eventually, when they realized my dad didn't have any diamonds, he was useless to them. So they released him. And after that, my mum said, you know, Abdul, my dad's name, we need to leave. This is very dangerous. And next time we might not be so lucky. And dad was so adamant he didn't want to leave his, you know, country. It was where he was born, where he grew up. And uh, mum said, you know what, you can stay here, but I'm taking my kids and I'm leaving. How old were Um, you at the time, Yasmin? I was 13 at the time, Uh so still young, but I, you know, I clearly remembered everything, more or less everything. I remember the next morning after my dad was beaten, you know, scrubbing his blood off the floor. And I was just saying to a friend the other day, it was the weirdest thing. It was like an out-of-body experience. It was like I was watching myself do it, you know, as a, it was just, it, it, even now when I talk about it, it doesn't sound real. It sounds as if I'm, I don't know, it's a script from a Hollywood story or something. So then eventually we fled and we, we came over to the UK. But, you know, initially my parents, both of them, didn't want to leave. I don't think generally people want to leave their, their home, their country, their family and friends and, you know, whatever. They don't want to leave unless it's absolutely necessary sometimes. I'm going to assume that it wasn't an easy journey either. Oh, God. As in the transition or the journey getting over here? Well, let's um, start with the journey getting over here and then the transition, because I imagine they were both pretty difficult. Yeah, well, do you know what? We were able to fly over here in the UK. My parents were always lovely to people. They were always kind to our neighbours. So people who could help were very forthcoming, you know, whether mum wanted to sell, you know, whatever she had or dad wanted to sell whatever he had. So they were able to get enough money for us to fly over. But it was it was the weirdest experience because I had two dogs growing up back home that I still feel emotional when I think about it. And it was like the dogs knew we were leaving oh. and it sounds really crazy, but they were, just, they were so sad and, and whining all throughout the day. It's like they knew they might never see us again. And I, and I remember feeling really sad and my dogs kept following me all around the house. And as a child, I think that's like the, one of the most devastating things. It sounds silly, but you know, your pets are like your part of your family. I'm shaking my just, head. I, it does not sound silly at yeah. all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just lost two puppies as well oh, that no. my dog gave birth to because we couldn't afford to give them the medication they, they needed as newborn puppies. So they had worms inside them, but we, we didn't have enough food to eat unless they'd be able to get medication for them. So I'd gone through that really horrible period and then having to leave my dogs. 
So that was very sad. And the journey to the airport felt very long and hot. And I remember sitting at the airport for what seemed like a lifetime. So I still remember watching this movie at the airport called Clash of the Titans because it felt like we were at the airport forever. And I remember this particular character called Medusa. She was this woman who practiced dark magic and she had snakes coming out of her head. And that was really what I remembered from the movie and the heat of the airport and just being there and thinking, God, are we ever going to leave? It's so hot. I'm so tired. I'm so hungry. Eventually, we boarded the plane and, you know, you felt that much safer. It was cooler because of the AC in the airplane. And you just felt, yes, we're, we're, we're getting out of this. You know, we might just be okay. But obviously, you don't feel safe until you actually land in the UK. And then it's freezing and it's cold. And- <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Welcome, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and again, the journey from the airport seemed very long. So we ended up over here in the UK homeless and we ended up staying in a hostel in Sydenham, southeast of London. I just remember just being so different to the other kids. We were very different It was, and it was very apparent. Culturally, obviously, it was very different. And, you know, kids can be pretty mean. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when you don't dress like them because we couldn't afford to get, you know, the fancy Nike or Reebok or Fila. I think Fila, I don't know if you remember that brand. Is it Fila? <laughs> I think it's With still knocking about. Yeah, it's still knocking about. <laughs> yeah, you know, these kids had all this fancy stuff and we could only afford to shop at the charity shop and I remember oh god feeling so embarrassed at the time you know like my mom taking us to the charity shop and I'd sort of look and see if anybody was around you know people from the home shelter if they could see it's funny what kids worry about isn't it my parents are thinking wow how are we going to survive and get these kids out of here and the kids are thinking oh god I don't want to go to a charity shop you know now I don't care because you're really comfortable in your skin and I'll just walk in one and and whatever but back then it was like oh my god no mother don't do this to me (laughs) well it's really important I think kids it's so important that you feel like you fit in yeah, because you want to belong. You want to be a part of a group, you know, part of a, a society or, or whatever. You just want to fit in. You don't want to be the odd one. out. There's like this need to be accepted, you know. Yeah. And for me, the most difficult thing actually was settling at school. I went to a school called Sydenham Girls. It was, was a high school. I remember being bullied because I was different because, you know, I had an accent and... I just wasn't one of the girls. I, di- I didn't sound like them. And I remember this particular occasion. I, was, I sat in the canteen. I was eating a pizza with a fork and knife. And I remember one of the girls saying to me, oh, my God, I didn't think you lot could eat with a fork and knife. I oh thought God. you swung from trees like monkeys and stuff. Oh. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> like, what do I say to that? It was so different because back home in, in Sierra Leone, we didn't really personally speaking anyway I can't speak for everybody but we didn't really experience bullying you know there was not I I never we never came across anything like that you know you just went to school because we had to pay my well my parents had to pay for schooling over there so there was no time for nonsense you really had to like get your head in your books and learn and if you didn't pass your exams unlike here you didn't you know get promoted to the next year you had to retake resit your exams you had to stay behind a year so everybody was just so focused on their books because you didn't want to get laughed at you didn't want to be called stupid so there was no time for like messing about or you know bullying I guess so that was that was just horrible because you felt so low in yourself your self-esteem you you know you think there's something wrong with you um 
But after a while, you just you grow a thick skin and you think, you know what, I, I'm not going to apologize for who I am. I am who I am. And that's it. And I think that made my bullies even more annoyed with me. And then I guess when I started performing, because I'd always wanted to, you know, sing and act. And, and when I started doing that at school, then I was almost like given an instant break. I was then seen, I think, for the first time as another human being rather than the blood diamond refugee girl. It yeah. was, oh, Yasmin, can you, can you perform at assembly? Oh, and the teachers were ever so wonderful for me. There's this particular teacher I'd never forget. I'm still in touch with her today called Miss Ross. And she understood, you know, she was very empathetic. And that made such a huge difference because you felt like you had that support, not just from your parents, but when you weren't at home in the safety of your own home, you still had that support and more and more people gave you a chance at school and, and I just became friends with everybody, you know, every group, you know, you know, at school, everybody's in a, in a, in a group or in a, a gang. Clique, or, yeah, or absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So then I became one of those who just bounced from one to the next to the next. You know, I, I was my own person, but I could talk to anybody. I, I, I got along with everybody because, you know, they gave me a chance, I guess, because they saw me as, as one of them, you know, and they could relate to whatever song I was singing or whatever the piece I was acting so then after that life became a bit easier yeah because uh, they got to know me and and I worked ridiculously hard to the point where I got a scholarship to the same stage school as Julie Andrews well done thank you and and at that point I didn't even know what a what a mu- mu- musical was I hadn't even seen a musical and and then I toured and then from then on I started writing my own music because I had this voice in my head that wanted to speak about issues that I'd experienced and things that were going on in the world and things that I'd see on the news, on TV. I just felt this responsibility to, to sort of speak about it. Now I do mainly acting and, and music and it's just, it's been a tough, tough road, but, you know, I was given a chance and then I'm able to do stuff that I absolutely love and hopefully make a difference and inspire people with my music and now I get commissioned by the BBC which you'd never to write music which I'd never dream of as a child you know I say to people I was just this like barefooted girl back home in Sierra Leone you know calling first dibs on mangoes because we had like (laughs) mango trees at the back of our yard (laughs) with my brothers I'd say hey that's my mango don't pick it no that's Uh, my mango you can climb up to the tree first and get the mango (laughs) bloody love a mango yeah it's a it's a sort of weird question so bear with me obviously you only have your experiences this is what happened to you this is your story your journey but do you Mm. feel it's made you a different character to if you'd stayed in Sierra Leone oh absolutely I think it's made me much stronger it's Mm -hmm. made me a bit more outspoken in Sierra Leone to a certain extent women are suppressed women aren't really allowed to have opinions it's very male dominating Mm -hmm. and seeing what I saw when I was growing up from friends and family I was determined to always speak my mind even if I was the odd one out the underdog the one that didn't fit in I made a conscious effort I said when I become a woman or when I was able to I would always speak my mind and and you know going through these issues that I did over here I was determined not to change and not to pretend to be anybody else other than myself so I guess going through all of that it really gives you a a thick skin and I think it makes you a a better person and it gives you perspective on both sides of the fence because I've been in the UK for 25 odd years I was in Sierra Leone 
you know, to, into my early teens. So I see both sides of the coin. So it makes me really appreciative of what I do have when I tend to moan about things. Because let's face it, we all do. We all moan about things. Yeah, of course. It's, it's part of the British way. <laughs> so no, it, it definitely makes you a stronger and hopefully a better person. How do you feel about Sierra Leone now when, when you think about it? Have you been back? I've been back, yeah. I've been back twice. I absolutely love Sierra Leone. You know, I was born there. I'm a Sierra Leonean. I, I grew up there to a certain extent. I absolutely love my country and I'm so passionate about it. And I think it's almost my mission to make a difference over in Sierra Leone and over in the UK and the world. You know, obviously it's a shame to have the country going through what it did. There was a civil war for, you know, near enough a decade. And after that, we had other issues like the mudslide, the Ebola. It's very, very sad. But, you know, all you can do is, is, is what you can do. There is no point in blaming people and, and saying it's your fault, it's your fault, it's because of this, it's because of that. It's, it's, it's so counterproductive and there's absolutely no point. I think in this life you have to make a choice. You can either be somebody who sits down behind their computer and, and, and blame everybody and make a whole load of noise and throw a whole load of abuse at people, or you can do something about it in whatever little way you can, whether it's treat something positive or, or bring awareness, you know, you just have to think what's going to actually help the people over there or what's going to actually help this situation. Well, that leads really neatly onto my next question, actually, which is what can we do to make refugees feel more welcome? Well, I think, you know, I always say this. I think there's a huge chunk of people in society who are actually very welcoming to refugees it's just that you know the media doesn't highlight it enough and we don't see it enough and again this is from from personal experience when we first came over here we didn't have electricity in the flat we were put into eventually after the homeless shelter and our neighbors you know they were so kind they used to bring hot buckets of water so we could have a wash you know so we could clean the house like there's a lot to be said for small kindnesses like that. And, you know, do you guys need this? Do you, do you guys need that? Especially the, the British public. I can only speak to the British public because, you know, this is where I live. But people are so kind. But for those who, I guess, have these preconceived ideas and misconception and just, you know, take on what they see in the media, I'd say, you know, just spare a thought and think if that was you, how would you feel if you had to leave your your country Imagine them being plucked from your home, away from your parents, friends and family and everything and everybody you know to be then in a different country, different culture. Everything is so different. Some people don't even speak or understand the language. And then to be met with whether it be aggression or, you know, people being unwelcoming, whatever. I mean, it is very tough. I Like, if people really take a a second to think about that, it's very, very hard. So I say just maybe to be a bit kinder and and welcoming. And remember this, refugees, we are human beings just like everybody else. You know, it's another human being with flesh and blood just like you. They're only called refugees because they're seeking refuge. And the other huge misconception is, People don't actually realize uh, refugees or um, mums and dads of refugees over here in the UK and and worldwide have added huge benefit to the economy. For example, through my music, I I employ people, so I I create employment. I pay my taxes. You know, a lot of famous musicians like Bob Marley. Bob Marley was actually a refugee from Jamaica. You know, he fled to Miami after being shot during the political violence. Why can't... Clef John from the Fuji's, he was a refugee. Canaan, 
MIA Mika, you know, a very famous singer. He yeah. fled from Lebanon. Rita Ora, a Freddie Mercury, like <laughs> one of the most famous, one of, in my opinion, one of the most, you know, the most talented songwriters in the world. He was a refugee, you know, uh, but it's like people just have these ideas that refugees just take from society. They dilute their culture. And, and that is so not true. I was in um, Tesco's yesterday with my husband. I fancied a bit of Chinese. And when I walked in the um, one of the aisles, you know, there was Indian food, there was Chinese food, there was Thai food. I mean, do you know how much that adds to the economy if you, if you really think about it and break it down? It's huge. So I think a lot of the times some people just focus on all oh, refugees coming over here, putting a burden on the system, diluting our culture and, and taking, you know, our jobs from us. Now, don't get me wrong, in any profession, you know, you have a few bad apples. You have you have people who do abuse the system, yeah. you know, in any profession, whether you're a politician, whatever you are. That's just human nature. That's nothing to do with being a refugee or, or not being a refugee. That's just human nature. But again, I'm so hopeful and really believe that there are a lot more people out there who are very charitable, very giving. For example, the IRC, they've done so much good work. And this work can only be carried out because of people's generosity and kindness. So for example, last year, 2017, they helped nearly, you know, about 23 million people access primary health care. That's wow. a huge amount. Yeah. Uh, and I think they provided like 1.14 million children with schooling and educational opportunities these things are not cheap, <laughs> you know. If you, I mean, I, I've done a bit of charity work, so I know how, you know, the amount of work and funding it takes to help people. But because of the generosity from people, you know, I, I see they're able to operate worldwide and not just help when there's conflict or, or whatever. They stay way after, you know, the cameras have gone after you know, somebody else somewhere has done something to make the headlines that's taken the attention from the media. You know, they, they like, provide protection, counselling, care, health, you know, so many things to help um, kickstart whatever issues have been going on to get people settled. And that's only possible because of the kindness of people. If that didn't exist or it was as little as we think it was, then, you know, companies like the IRC and various other charities wouldn't exist. So I think generally people are very kind and giving. I think it's those who don't quite understand and maybe, dare I say, a bit of lack of education yeah. or lack of understanding you know, then they make judgments and, and I'd whatnot, go so but... far as to say lack of humanity, to be honest with you, Yasmin. Hmm. Well, well I'll I say that. In... <laughs> <laughs> I try to have faith. Well, you're very inspiring and making me feel bad for being a cynical old bag. But, you know, I am oh, a cynical no, old bag. No, don't feel bad. Listen, it takes all sorts to make the world go around. You know, and there's, there's no right or wrong. It's, it's what, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever suits you and whatever you think. You can't, you can't suppress people and their opinions. You know, who are Oh, I go on. Say, let, know, please, let us try to suppress right some of them. <laughs> Did your dad manage to mm -hmm. settle? Because you said he, I mean, your mum and dad didn't want to leave. Did they manage to settle? Yeah, we all came over, but it was a bit tricky for me to talk about. But eventually my dad died of epilepsy. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's okay, which is what he suffered from back home. My mum is a tough old cookie. My mum, as soon as she was able to work and got a national insurance number, she was working, you know. 
that's that's the other thing. Before I was 16, I got my national number. I was NI number. I was working. Refugees or generally don't just sit on their bum if they're able to work. <laughs> Can I just take you across the Atlantic to America and what's going on there at the moment? I mean... Can you even mm-hmm. bear the thought of how it might have felt had you been separated from your parents? Oh, God. Well, it's obviously very disappointing and sad, isn't it? And as a mother-to-be, I can't even imagine being separated from my bump right now. <laughs> you know, a, ba- a child that you you brought up, it, it, it's very sad. And honestly, I can't imagine, you know, being separated from your, your children. It's It's a very very tricky situation isn't it they're separating families and that will cost america money to keep people and and kids in these prisons but therefore because it's costing america money it does feel like it's purely punitive to make already frightened people feel like criminals and to feel punished did anything similar happen to you and your family that made you feel like you were being punished for even being here we were refused asylum actually when we initially arrived. The UK government wanted us to, to send us back. So we thought, well, God, we haven't done anything wrong. So it almost felt like being punished to get sent back to get killed in a way. Jesus, yeah. Because so at the time. What, what happened? How did you manage to stay? Well, obviously, the, the, the war escalated, and I think the rest of the world really started to grasp the situation right. or the gravity of the situation. So, for example, people's arms and legs were getting chopped off Jesus. by the rebels. You know, they'd yeah. give you a choice. They'd say to you, as sick as it sounds, they'd say to you, so choose, what do you want, long sleeve or short sleeve? So if, if you say, okay, I'll take a short sleeve, they'd literally cut your arm off just below uh, your shoulders. And if you wanted a long sleeve, they'd cut your arms from the wrist. I mean, can you imagine? That's horrific. Can you imagine? No. The, the rebels were, were were cutting the stomachs of pregnant women. I mean, I feel really sick thinking about it. A, a, a woman who was alive and carrying a growing baby, they'd cut their bellies open because they wanted to see how the baby was laying in a woman's tummy. I mean, doesn't isn't that sickening? Isn't that? Yeah, it's horrific. It, you can't even, like I say, this. it sounds as if this is from a, a Hollywood movie. So that was the situation <laughs> we were going to get thrown back in. So it, it's just crazy, isn't it? So you think, God, what, what, have, I, what have I done wrong? What have, what have my parents done wrong? This time when they get my dad, are they going to release him? You know, are they just going to straight up murder him? And then are we next? So you almost feel, well, we haven't done we haven't done anything wrong. Why, why are we being punished? And, you know, you, you feel scared. But eventually, obviously, the rest of the world did see what was going on. Because back then, it was different, wasn't it? We didn't have we didn't have social media. We didn't have Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, where people could take pictures and, and you know, spread it all over the world in, in, in literally in an instant. We yeah. didn't have that. It was, especially at the start, it was just by, by word of mouth and, you know, whatever... Uh, journalists were over there whoever who whatever journalists dared go over there because you know obviously they paid for their life as well i mean it wasn't it wasn't a joke it was a real situation with people being killed for absolutely no reason you know so yeah you think well with all this going on why do they want to send us back what what have we done i haven't done anything we just want to survive and and be able to live life i think this is the aspect the sort of real human aspect of people being refugees that people outside of that don't always grasp. Mm, 
And you know what? Understandably, to a certain extent, because if stop you being so been nice, to... Yasmin, stop it. Oh, I'm not. I'm not. I'm <laughs> not. Like, like, think about it. If you haven't been through it, it's it's hard for people to understand. You know, if and sometimes if if you're not tra- if you're not well travelled or this is all you know, this is all you know. If living in London is all you know, that's all you know. You can't actually understand what it's like to have a truckload of soldiers break into your house at three, four in the morning and drag you out and watch your dad being near enough beaten to death. You you cannot understand that. And I understand, you know, if you haven't been through it, it just seems like you're watching another movie. You can never imagine what it's like. So I understand why people judge sometimes. Well, thank you for being a much nicer person than I am. <laughs> I don't say that. No, you it's totally are. Kind of you... well, and it's absolutely great. I, I really do love it. It's, it's really good. You do make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it's great to have vocal people. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just as vocal, but we're different, and then it's all good. And I think the world needs people like you to to voice everything out, and you know, say exactly how you feel, and people like me to voice how I feel and talk about my experiences. So. So you just you just demonstrated more niceness. That's what's that's what's happening now. (laughs) Yasmin, where can people find you and your music? On all the social media, Yasmin Caddy Music or Yasmin Caddy and iTunes. I've got stuff on iTunes, so just the the usual social media outlets and Amazon and, and all that jazz. So the best thing we can do to help is to keep the conversation going. And of course, as ever, any spare money you might have, please consider giving it to one of the many excellent charities doing incredible work to get refugees the healthcare and the future that they need and deserve. Why not start with IRC? You can find them on Twitter at IRC Europe. If you're looking specifically at America right now, then the Refugee and Immigrant Centre for Education and Legal Services, or RACES, R-A-I-C-E-S, in Texas, is accepting donations and doing amazing, vital work connecting people at the border with the legal help they need to reunite with their families. You can find them on Twitter at R-A-I-C-E-S, Texas. That's all from me. Thank you for listening. Please tell a pal if you think they should listen to us. And if you have a spare couple of minutes, maybe rate and review us on iTunes. It really does help. Five. Oh, I don't know why I just said that. But yeah, five. Please. Thanks. And until the next time, stay frosty. Standard Issue for All Women.